Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 2? We've been in the midst of a series on the entire book of Colossians from first chapter through the fourth chapter. And the title for the series is simply that, Colossians, Jesus Christ is everything. That is the theme of the entire book. And so we're using this as a great way to tune ourselves up with making sure that Jesus Christ in our lives is supreme. And we understand the significance of that from this uh, wonderful letter that is written to the church at Colossae, written from the Apostle Paul about 60 A.D. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 2, if you will, and that's where we're going to begin today. So the really the, the chapter 2 is really, if I had to put a title around chapter 2, and, and I'll continue this next Sunday, but it's really all about pulling the weeds of legalism. That's why I've decided to kind of entitle chapter 2, Pulling the Weeds of Legalism. And I understand some of you are not even sure what legalism is or what it looks like, but we're going to we'll understand by the time we're finished. So what I want to do is we're going we're gonna to look at verse 6 through 15 today, and, but I'm going to read it in chunks, okay? So I'm going to read a couple of verses, we'll teach that, and then we'll move to the next verses, but today we'll cover verses 6 through 15, and then next week we'll finish chapter 2, all right? So let's look at the very beginning part of it in Colossians chapter 2, the first two verses, Colossians chapter Two. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now you can see right in the beginning of these two verses that the Apostle Paul is talking, really kind of shifting gears from his emphasis in chapter 1, and he's talking to the Christians here about how we ought to live. And notice that he starts off by saying, just the same way that you receive Jesus, you need to do what? Continue. You need to continue to live. So he's established this connection because too often there are Christians who come to Christ. Maybe it's at a large crusade or maybe it's on Christian television or maybe it's at a local church or some outreach and they, they say yes to Jesus Christ and they express faith in him and they're, they're born again as Christians, but they never ever go beyond that. Too many Christians simply need to hear the message, grow up, grow up. It'd be all right. You can tell your neighbor, just say grow up. Yeah, just tell them grow up. It's time for all of us to grow up. And here, the apostle Paul, led by the Spirit, tells us a little bit about how we ought to be growing up. Just as you've received him, how to receive him? By faith, right? Through grace, by faith through grace, just as you received him, continue to live your lives in him. Now I want you to notice that in this verse, he really chooses some interesting metaphors to describe the spiritual growth process. He says, continue to live your lives in him. Notice in verse 7, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Here he uses four different metaphors to describe the process of spiritual growth. And so what I've done is just made a suggestion to you that he's maybe speaking about four different dimensions of growth. And the first one that he uses is the word what? Rooted. This has to do with the agricultural, obviously a metaphor of what? Of a tree. 
He's talking about being rooted, that we ought to continue to grow up. How? Rooted. We are to be grounded, rooted in the soil of God's Word. If you're not rooted in the soil of God's Word, your growth is going to be off. Or you may not even grow. Or your growth may be stunted. Or you may be growing awkwardly or not in the correct way. So we need to make sure that our roots are growing down into the Word of God as they should be. Very interesting, too, that the tense of this Greek word uh, of being rooted means once and for all having been rooted. Once and for all having been rooted. So we are to be rooted in Christ. And just as if a tree puts down deep roots in order to find nutrition, to find water, even in Jeremiah we have the description of the tree that, that even during the hottest of summer heat doesn't wither, it doesn't die because why? Its root system is the key, isn't it? The roots, if you've got the right kind of root system, you can make it through a hard, hard, hot summer. Am I right? And so here, if you've ever traveled in the Middle East, you've seen the olive tree, an amazing tree, and, and, and they can be ancient in terms of age, but they just live in the midst of, of this uh, very arid and dry uh, place, and many times, very, very, much of the time, very hot. But you know what the key is? Their root system. Those roots just keep going until they are secured that tree, and they know how to find moisture, even when there's not a lot available. In the same way, we live our lives as Christians. We need to make sure that we're rooted in the Word of God. Amen? That we're getting nutrition from our lives being rooted in Him. But he goes on to not only use this metaphor of a tree, he goes on to use a metaphor of a building. He says we ought to also grow how? Upward by being built up. This is the metaphor of a building now he's talking about. He talks about this construction image in order to show us that our foundations need to be built on Christ. Again, he's adding to this idea. He's saying you need to be rooted and then he switches the metaphor from a tree to a building. He says you need to be rooted but you also need to be grounded and you need to be built up. We know that Ephesians chapter 2 tells us what? That Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Again, using that building construction analogy. In a building, you got to have a foundation. And, those, and the walls of the building are connected and the foundation is joined where? At that cornerstone. And who is the cornerstone of our life? Ought to be the center of everything in our life. Jesus Christ, right? He is the chief cornerstone, and he ought to be your cornerstone as well. And the only way we can really grow up right is if we make sure that he is that chief cornerstone. He holds everything together, and he provides the alignment to our lives. I see a lot of Christians say that they're, that they're going through the process of trying to grow in the Lord, but, but they're off a little bit here and there. The walls aren't quite plumb, and many times it's because we're not properly aligned to Jesus Christ. Christ as our cornerstone. And the third area of growing that he's challenging us to grow up is that we ought to grow not only uh, grow downward by being rooted properly, not only grow upward by being built up like a building, but he also talks about growing inward. Here he shifts the metaphor once again, this time to a student. He talks about being strengthened in the faith. Do you see that? That we're to be strengthened in the faith, he says, as you were taught. 
You and I are to be students. We're students in God's school. And I've got news for you. He's got a school and a course and a class for all of us. And we go through different stages and different classes. And we may, we may, sometimes we flunk our test and we have to go through it again. Come on, can I hear an amen? I, I'm not the only one that's flunked some of those exams, right? You flunk one and he just keeps teaching you. He'll put you right through that same course again until we're what? Until we're strengthened in our faith as we were taught. And so we're continuing to be taught. And as students, we need to be taught the Word of God to grow in our faith. We need to make sure that we're putting ourselves in the right kind of an environment where we are being taught and our faith is being strengthened. Sometimes our faith gets weak. Sometimes our faith gets weak. And, and, and the, what strengthens it is the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God and in the right environment. There are a lot of Christians who think that they can just live worldly lives. They can just be surround themselves with people that, are, that don't think right, that don't behave right all the time, and somehow they're going to be able to be strong for God in the midst of that. Listen, I want us to be salt and light in the world, but we also must be strengthening ourselves by surrounding ourselves with strong relationships in the community of, of, of believers to where we have people that are we're linking arms with. And in that, we're in school, we're in class, and our faith is being strengthened. And when I find myself being uh, more isolated from spending time with God's people, I find my faith being affected. So our faith is not only developed by learning and hearing the Word of God, but it's by being in the right classroom environment, if you will. It's one reason we put a big stress on living out this Christian life in community and doing it in small groups and learning God's Word together in those kinds of settings. Why? Because it's biblical. There's one more way he tells us to grow up, and that is, I, I love this, he says, he uses the, changes the metaphor one more time to that of a river. And he says we ought to do what? Overflow with thankfulness. Overflow with thankfulness. The scripture again, rooted and built up in him, strengthened the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The picture here is of a river that is so full, the water is pushing down in that river so much that the river bursts over its banks. Overflowing. You get the picture? It's based on that phrase that we just read in the scripture. As we are grounded, as we are rooted, as we are strengthened, it ought to result in joyful lives. It ought to result in just more thankfulness to God, a greater sense of gratitude in God. And the picture he uses here is that of a river that overflows its banks. So the first thing we see in these first two verses is that we need to grow up. Amen? Now let's look at the next one in verse 8. Verse 8, he adds to this, and this really becomes kind of the beginning of this next section of chapter 2. He's telling us here to be on guard, to be on guard. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Now, it's pretty obvious there, that's a warning, isn't it? He's saying, be on guard. Actually, the language there, see to it, which is in the New International Version, literally, it means be on guard. Some, some translations actually say that. Be on guard so that no one takes you captive. 
What is he saying? There was danger. There was deceptive teaching going on there in that church at Colossae, and he's wanting to warn them, and he's getting ready to unpack some of their, some of their methods and their strategies of deceptive teaching. But he starts off with this very firm statement in verse 8, warning them, listen, you need to see to it. Make sure that no one takes you captive. That in and of itself is a pretty horrifying picture, isn't it? That we could actually be taken captive through wrong teaching and that actually false teachers can take us captive and i promise you i have watched it happen for years i've watched christians that started off well and then they begin to to hear some teaching that's wonky that's a little bit off that's not right in alignment with truth and next thing you know they begin to be seduced by it and they get off center and next thing you know they're they're, they're separated off here into some weird fad or some doctrinal a tributary that gets off. I've seen it hundreds and thousands of times. So Paul wants to warn. He's never met these people at Colossae, but he knows their pastor. And he's saying to them, oh, listen, I need to warn you today. Don't let this happen. See to it. It's your responsibility to make sure that no one gets you off track, that no one comes and takes you captive. Now, how can they take you captive? He's very clear here about how they do that. How do they do it? Through their teaching. Make sure no one takes you captive, and then he describes it. He calls it these different words, hollow. May look good on the outside but it's just hollow. Have you ever bought something like that? We're disappointed after you took a big bite. Hollow and also not only that, but it's deceptive. It's subtle. It can be deceptive. It's a hollow and deceptive philosophy. By the way, this doesn't mean this philosophy in and of itself, the study of philosophy is wrong. He's talking about this kind of philosophy that is against God's word and that actually demeans who Jesus Christ is. But he refers to it as a deceptive philosophy. And he says it's designed to take people astray. The whole idea of the false teaching that was going on there and that legalistic teaching that was happening there at Colossae was to get people off track. You know, there are a lot of people that are always trying to build their own little kingdoms. You ever notice that? You know, they're, they're uh, focused on their own little empire rather than building the kingdom of God. Listen, if we're building the kingdom of God, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And we're aligning, we're building people's loyalty to Jesus. That's what's most important. But you see it a lot. You see people, and, and frequently, you know, I get bells and whistles that start going off. I'm like, uh, I'm concerned. Uh, I'm listening to the teaching over here, what's coming out of their mouth. And then I'm saying, and look at, they're also just trying to get people to do their thing. And sometimes it's about building their own empire rather than building God's kingdom. I'm just, it's just a warning to you. It's just the truth, all right? And many times they're out to use any method that they can to deceive. So that's why we need to make sure that we stay true to the Scripture, and that's what Paul is warning them about. Notice he also describes it as uh, this kind of teaching, he said, is based upon and dependent on human tradition. In other words, there's a lot of teaching that is false that we tend to accept because it's simply been handed down from generation to generation. But it's just based upon human tradition. 
sometimes out of the thinking of men, and it gains a foothold in society, and then it's passed on from generation to generation, and then all of a sudden it becomes popular and becomes widely supported, and people's view about everything under the sun, uh, people's all of a sudden societal views about abortion start to loosen up, societal views about about, uh, whether or not homosexuality is a sin or not, all of a sudden it becomes an acceptable practice, and all of a sudden people are now saying, oh, well, evolution is okay. What happened to these things that all of a sudden began to perpetuate because why? They're human and worldly traditions. They're not biblically based. Don't get me off on what I think is biblically based on those. I'm happy to tell you later. But, but the, we need to stick with truth and not build our views and philosophies based on human tradition, but upon the Word of God and upon the truth of God's Word. And so here he's giving a firm warning, isn't he? And I think that the, it was very clear to the Colossians and hopefully for us. Now let's look at verse 9 through 15. 9 through 15. These are exciting words. So uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to explain to you how Paul uh, really is attempting to pull out the weeds of legalism from the midst of these people. All right, so there's several different uh, verses here, so let's just pay attention to them, and uh, they're packed full of revelation. Verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity, or the one translation says, all the fullness of the Godhead, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh. In other words, your carnal nature, your carnal man, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hallelujah. See, just reading it makes you feel better, doesn't it? Huh? Now, I think it's obvious he has shifted gears now from talking about their own ongoing growth, and he has now begun to warn them about this false teaching. But notice that the first thing he does is he establishes, if we're going to pull out the weeds of legalism, the first thing that we must do is remember our legal standing in Christ. Next week, we'll get to the second part, which is we have to resist the lures of legalism. But the first step, if we're going to make sure that we're properly rooting, grounding, growing right, is to do what? To remember our legal standing in God. There's nothing more powerful. There's there's no better defense against a performance-based legalism than to remember your legal standing in Jesus. 
That is the first step towards making sure that we are not that, that we're not going to be sucked away by legalism. If we understand God's divine decree as a result of what he's done on our behalf, then we're going to begin to experience amazing grace and life and freedom in our lives and we will not be subject to those legalistic tendencies. And so that's what he's doing here. He's laying out for us uh, uh, our legal standing. So let me give to you taken directly from these verses that I just read there are four decrees or four truths declaring our legal standing in Christ. And you can, some of you say, I know that stuff. Listen to me, you can never hear this too much. I think one of the first things we need to teach young new believers is who they are in Jesus Christ. That's one of the most important things. And listen, I don't care how mature you get. I, sometimes when I start getting beat up, I just go back and I just begin to declare what my position is in Jesus. I just return, okay, what is my standing in Jesus Christ? I'm having a rough week, but my rough week doesn't affect my standing. I have a legal standing in Jesus Christ. Amen? So these truths never get old and you never get too mature to get back to them, all right? So anchor yourselves in these four truths and they won't for many of you there won't be like revelation but maybe a light will come on i don't know number one you can say this with me we are complete say it with me we are complete that's the first decreed truth that we find here in verse 9 and 10 notice it says for in christ all the fullness of the deity, in other words, all the fullness of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, all the fullness of the Trinity dwelt in Jesus Christ while he was on this earth in human form, in his body, when he was walking on this planet. All of God was dwelling in him. That's powerful. These teachers were running around saying they, they were denying that. They were saying, well, Jesus wasn't, wasn't really God. He was just one of many representatives of God. Paul is hitting this head on. He's saying, oh, no. He said, Jesus is at the center of God's saving activity. Jesus, when we put our faith in Christ, we, you and I are included in everything he has done. So in everything that Jesus has already done, when we put our faith in him, we are in Christ. It is our new position, James, in Christ. We once were in Adam, but now we are in Christ. And everything that's true about him is true about us. That's why the scripture can teach we were crucified with him. Galatians 2.20, when he died, I died with him when he was buried i was buried with him when he was raised from the dead i was raised with him why because i'm in christ that union of being in christ not not due to my daily fellowship not an experiential union which is important but my legal standing is in christ and here we learn that the fullness, the same fullness, this just blow your mind, the same fullness that was in Jesus, in his body, the fullness of God that was in him, now that fullness has been imparted to us. When I'm telling you, we are complete. We are complete. And by the way, I, I like the, in the Greek language, the original language, when it talks there about uh, it lives in bodily form, it lives in him, the word there means to dwell permanently. Listen, Jesus is not just a way to God. 
A lot of people preach and teach, well, Jesus is the way to God. Yes, he is. But he's not just a way to God. He is the only way because he is God himself. He's not just an option. This isn't a multiple choice salvation process. Choose Muhammad, choose this, choose that, choose this, or mix them all together. No, it's not that. No, it is one way in his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. So the second truth, the first one is we are complete. The second legal declaration taken from these verses is what? We are alive. Say it with me. We are alive. Now, verses 11 through 13 establish uh, an interesting parallel for us between Old Testament circumcision and our new life in Jesus Christ. Let me read this part again to you from verse 11 through 13, the beginning of 13. In him, you were also circumcised. Notice everything goes back to the in him part. Whenever you see the in him or in Christ, you know it's talking about position. Anytime you see that. So here we are again. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not a circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. All right, let's make sure we're straight on this. We understand that in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, God initiated circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh on the male organ, in order to signify it was an external sign, but it was to speak of an inward devotion. So all young Jewish males were circumcised as a sign, as a sign of their devotion and their consecration to God. That's what Old Testament circumcision was all apart, all about, to set them apart, to identify them, their true followers of Yahweh. Now, one of the problems that they were having in the church here at Colossae is this. There are many of these that were legalists. And what they were saying is they were demanding that these new Christians, many of them were Gentiles, they were saying, now, y'all need to submit to circumcision. You need to come back under the Old Testament law. And these false teachers were suggesting that obedience to Old Testament procedures and regulations was going to help them become more spiritual. And what Paul is saying is, no, let's get this straight. There was, there was circumcision in the Old Testament. He said, but now we have been circumcised in Christ in a new way, in a new and a better way. It's not physical. This one is spiritual. Circumcision has to do with what? The cutting away of unnecessary flesh. The cutting away of the old. So the idea is that we come to Jesus Christ, that old nature, that part of us that, that made us rebel, that Adamic nature, that, that old man, if you will, has been taken care of by what? The cutting away. It's a heart issue. Our hearts have been circumcised if we know Jesus. Now, we may not live like it every day, but it ha we're, if you're in Christ, you're alive because something old has been cut away and separated in order to mark you as belonging to Jesus Christ. 
You belong to him. It's not, it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual inward thing. Even though circumcision was a physical procedure, it had the spiritual side to it. And that's what he's trying to say here is many times things in our Christian lives even become religious tradition, religious ritual. And he's saying, listen, the important thing is to understand that our hearts are cut, that that old part of the heart, the old heart has been cut away in order to allow the new fresh work of God in us, that in Christ part of us, that new man to come out and live big. Amen? So when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus spiritually circumcises us or he cuts away our sinful nature in order to prove that we belong to him. Now it's up to us to walk in and to live like it. Amen? Since we are alive, since we no longer are dead to the sin, that sinful part that we've been circumcised now he compares circumcision of the heart to water baptism very interesting so he talks about circumcision it's again what it's outward in the old testament but it's supposed to be inward in our hearts now in new testament believers and then he says just like in baptism we were buried with him in baptism Baptism, water baptism is what? The immersion and going down the water and coming up is symbolic. It's a physical representation, but it's a representation of something that's happened in here. When we are baptized in water, it's saying we are buried with Christ. It's an outward sign that we belong to Jesus. And someone can go and get wet and still go to hell if the inward thing hasn't happened. Amen? It doesn't, baptism isn't going to save you. We get water baptized because we're saved. Not to get saved, but because we've come to Jesus Christ. And that is an outward expression of an inward decision and commitment we've made in our hearts. I'm thankful we're alive in Christ. So when Christ died, our old nature died with him. And water baptism is a wonderful picture of this inward reality. So you can just see the last bullet that I put up there. We are co-buried, co-raised, and and co-made alive with Christ. So in the same way that Christ died, buried, raised, resurrected, new life, we, because we're in him, we have a partnership with each of those facts. Amen? Isn't that good news? Don't you agree? Number three, our sins are canceled. Woo! Our sins are canceled. Everybody say that with me. Our sins are canceled. The scripture tells us in these two verses, 13 and 14, he forgave us all our sins. How much? Did, did you see? Don't let that just slip by you. He forgave us what? All our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away and he nailing it to the cross. Now, what is this talking about? It's speaking about our sins. The language here, when it talks about the written code, let me go back to it. The written code with its regulations, that's speaking about how our lives compare to the law and the, the where we miss it, and where we fall short. And that is a record. In other words, the record of our lives, if you will, the, uh, the balance sheet of our lives regarding sin and disobedience. How many of you think that doesn't look too good when we come to Jesus? I mean, we got, a, this, we got this big, long list. Some of our lists are longer than others, right? We got all this list of things that we've done that we have, we have violated God's nature, 
We have disappointed him. We are sinned. We have all sinned. But there, there is this written code, if you will. It's using this as a picture, as a, as a word analogy. So if you can just imagine, there's this list of our wrongs. And in Bible day, they would actually, they would put people in prison. The Romans would put them in prison and they would take the, from the court, they would take all the, all the criminal deeds, everything that they'd done to break the law. They put it on a written piece of parchment. They would take that parchment and they would go and they would put it on the outside door of the prison cell where you were imprisoned and it would be there. When this language was used to the people of uh, the Colossians day, Paul's day, they knew exactly what it's talking about. They said, oh, the list of all of the criminal acts and all the deeds of disobedience and where you fell short, they're all listed out there. And what does it say here? He took that and he did what? It, notice it says it was against us, right? It's against us and opposed to us. It basically, it, it, if it was a matter of what we've done right and wrong, guess what? None of us would measure up. Am I right? We'd all uh, have to live with our sin and the penalty of that. But instead, what happened to it? Jesus came along. He said, I'll take that. I'll take that written list right there. I'll take that whole list and I'm going to take it with me and I'm going to nail it to the cross. He nails that written list of offenses and sins and where we have messed up. And it's been nailed to the cross. Our sins have been canceled. It's Jesus has removed that so that we can be free and we can be forgiven. He has forgiven us. That written code was like a handwritten ledger. And he took it. It was heavy on the debt side, right? The debt of our sin. He took it all. He took our rap sheet and he put it on himself so that now we can be set free and it's nailed to the cross. And he's saying, all your sins are canceled. I, you know, I know I'm forgiven, but I just like that word canceled. Just cancel it. Hallelujah. Have you ever had a magazine company send you, they, they want to send you magazines and you tell them, I, I canceled that subscription. They just keep sending you the magazine. You know, you have to sometimes say, no, it is. I, I remember I, before I've taken that little renewal card and I wrote big letters, canceled and send it back in. That's what Jesus has done to our sin list. It is canceled. The penalty of sin is canceled. Hallelujah. And the good news is it's, listen, it's all sins, meaning all your past wrongs, we're nailed there. Your present stack, okay, and anything in the future where you may fall short. How many of you know we're going to fall short? First John tells us that. There, there's no one here that can say they're without sin. We're going to fall short. But guess what? The good news is what? He's already paid for it all. Hallelujah. It's paid for. So our sins are canceled. I cannot leave you hanging here. Give me, give me two more minutes to wrap up. All right. Number four, we have victory. Verse 15. Victory. Look at the verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's literally powers and authorities, speaking of demonic, satanic powers and authorities, demons, okay? Having disarmed the demons and Satan, he made a public speech spectacle of them triumphing over them by what by the cross 
Hallelujah. The word is so important there. Here, the word there for he disarmed them is literally the word that means stripped. So if you can imagine a soldier out here in battle, and it's literally the idea of every piece of armor, every piece of weapon, everything that he was wearing in order to do battle has been stripped off of him. He's been cleaned of it. And what it's saying is that's a picture of Satan and all of his henchmen, all of his demons, all of his powers at the cross. Jesus disarmed him. He stripped him down naked of all that he had against us. Jesus won that victory at the cross. And the beautiful picture, let me just give it to you in the original language, the picture he's painting. He's painting a picture because Roman armies, whenever they would go to war, they would always have a celebration march through the town, through the new city, through the new country that they've just taken over. And at the very front of the march was the conquering general. The commander was at the front of the group. And behind that commander who had just won that particular victory were all the soldiers of the winning army. They'd all lined up and they were marching through the streets of the city saying, this is our victory. We won this victory. And behind the army and the soldiers who had won the victory in chains were now the defeated enemy. The defeated soldiers were behind them, the last in the, in the march at the very end. Chain, they're just walking along, having to walk through the city Talk about a defeated look. I mean, even with the Super Bowl, only the victors get to have the parade. They don't make the losing team walk on there. But that's what it would be like. It'd be like taking the losing team, saying, y'all, y'all are in change. Y'all are right behind us. And they march through celebrating the victory through the city. That is the picture. Look at the language. Do you see what it said? Let's go back and look at it. Look what it says. Having disarmed, stripped Satan and all of his powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them. That's that celebration, victory march through the town. And how did he do it? Through the cross. The good news is that at the cross 2,000 years ago, Satan was totally defeated. You say, well, how much authority does he have in my life today? Only as much as you'll give him. Only as much as you allow him to deceive you. Only to the degree that you allow him to put things in your mind and tempt you with. We have victory through Jesus Christ. These are four wonderful declarations, aren't they? About you and me who are in Christ. Would you stand to your feet? I'm going to have our prayer teams come, ministry teams come forward this time. Just going to pray for you right now. Steve's going to release you with a declaration. If you need ministry today of any kind, maybe Jesus isn't the Lord of your life. You need to come to Jesus today. You come up and allow one of these teams to pray with you. They'll pray a prayer of faith with you, whatever your need may be. Don't hesitate to come immediately as I pray. Father, we're thankful that your truth sets us free. We're thankful for these declarations about us as Christians. And we we accept them by faith. And Lord, let us just remember them even this week of really who we are in Christ and what you tell us here in Colossians chapter 2. So bless us with the fullness and richness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Can we say amen for a foundation in Jesus Christ? I mean, yeah. All right. So I'd love to speak a blessing over you, but also one reminder. The, everyone is up here right now to be able to pray with you. Anything that you need, just anything going on in your life, they're here to stand by and pray with you. We really want to live life with you. 
So please, now in the name of Jesus Christ, we speak blessing over each one of your homes, over your family members. May the love of Christ rain down on each one of you, filling you up, changing your lives, giving you the joy and peace of Jesus Christ. Please be blessed and be safe with him. In the name of Jesus Christ, you're dismissed. Have a great week.